Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. I want to begin today's economic update by talking to you about three important topics before we bring in our guest, Wendell Potter, and talk about Medicare. The first topic is about the real cost of living. The second topic is about the debt ceiling debate. And the third topic is to talk about cronyism at the highest levels of government. So let's begin with the city of New York. There's a brand new report out dated March 2023. It's called Overlooked and Undercounted, the True Cost of Living. It's produced by the Fund for New York and by the United Way here in New York. Two very well-reputed, very well-known, not partisan particularly in our political sense, people who work on and report on and help the city of New York. And in this new report, they come up with statistics so important, and not just for New York, but for the whole country, that I wanted to go over a few of them with you because they give you an insight into the reality of the American economy rather than the hyped-up defensiveness of the Biden administration who wants to paint everything in colors glowing or the Republicans who want to paint everything as a disaster. Here is a relatively objective report, and here's what it says. The most important statistic in the whole report goes like this. 50%, one half, of working-age households, that is, households in which the adults are somewhere between early 20s and late 40s in age, 50% of them, and how many households are that in New New York City? 1.3 million households in which 3 million people live. These half of all the households in New York City earn incomes, here comes the language of the report, insufficient to afford a minimum standard of living, what the report costs calls the true cost of living. Out of that half of all New York City households, 80% had at least one adult working a full-time job. 54% of these of this half of all households, the adults had some college credits. These are educated people. 79% of this half of our households paid more than 30% of their income for rent. Wow. Among white households, one-third are making insufficient money for a minimum standard. At the other extreme, among Latino households, 65% are earning less than a minimum. That's the reality of the American economy, and not just in New York City, all over. That's the reality. Don't give me statistics about relatively low unemployment or statistics about job search. This is the reality. This is about people, most of whom are working, 
and they are unable to sustain a minimum standard of living. That's what the American economy is delivering to the people of this society now. And for that, they get a big fat F. I want to turn next to this bizarre debate, been going on now for some time and will continue. It's about the federal debt ceiling. And I want to make sure everybody understands it because the way it's presented in the media is there's no nice way to say this, so I'm going to say it bluntly. They're lying, both sides, and I will explain. So, first of all, what is a debt ceiling? The United States government borrows money. It's been doing it for a long time. And the total amount of money adding up what they do each year is the national debt. And the problem with the national debt is when a country owes money and borrows it, it has to pay interest on that debt and it has to repay the debt. So if people borrow in the year, say, 2000, if the federal government borrows in the year 2000, it has to pay interest ever afterwards until it has to repay that. That's a burden on everybody who comes later. We all have to pay extra taxes to pay interest on the debt from government's past that borrowed the money. Why does the government borrow money? Answer is very simple. The same Congress that is now debating raising the ceiling is the Congress that decides how much to raise in taxes and how much to spend. If you raise in taxes what you spend, you don't need to borrow. You only need to borrow if you don't tax enough relative to what you spend. The same Congress that is now debating should we raise the ceiling or not is the same Congress that made the decision that requires borrowing in the first place. So here is the truth and the simple economics. If you don't want to burden this country with rising interest payments that future taxpayers are going to have to pay for, if you don't want to have to raise the ceiling, which is simply a limit about how much you can borrow as the federal government, if you don't want to do that, perfectly reasonable, then you've got to do one or the other of these two things. Get more in taxes, raise them, or cut the spending that you do. But that's not the way it's presented to the American people. No, 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 no. Raising taxes is ignored, is denied, is dealt with as if it weren't there, even though it's a clear obvious way to avoid having to raise more money by borrowing, to avoid raising the national debt, and therefore to ignore the ceiling, we don't have to worry about it. No, no, no. But in our country, we don't talk about raising taxes because our two political parties have agreed to act as if it weren't there. So what do the Democrats want? They don't want to cut spending because that's their constituents who get that spending. So they want to raise the ceiling, borrow more. And in, in order to make their case, they spin horrible, alarmist stories. If we don't raise the ceiling, we won't be able to borrow, and then maybe we won't be able to pay off the people who are expecting to be repaid because they lent money to the government in the past. Or maybe we won't give Social Security recipients their monthly check 
or maybe we won't pay wages to government workers, all this terrible thing. You must raise the debt because we don't want you to cut spending. Notice what's missing? Raising taxes, which if you did it, you wouldn't have the whole issue in front of you. And what do the Republicans do? They're even worse. They say, we don't want to raise the ceiling because it worsens the debt, and therefore there must be spending cuts. No, no, no. If you really believe that, you haven't understood the most elementary economics there is. If you don't want to raise the debt, the only option is to not to cut spending. The other option is to raise taxes. And now let me give you, just to drive the point home, some of the taxes that could be raised to solve this problem, to mean we don't have to borrow more, and therefore we don't have to care about the ceiling on the debt because we're not going to borrow more. So here's some examples. The Social Security tax at this point is only levied on wage and salary incomes up to $160,000 a year. Every dollar over 160000 you know, the kind of big money corporate executives and fancy doctors and lawyers get, they don't have to, above 160000 they don't have to pay into Social Security for every dollar above that. That's not written in stone. That can be changed. Everybody should contribute to the pension for everybody. That would raise a lot of money. Here's another gap, another proposal. You could levy the Social Security tax not just on wages and salary incomes, you could levy it on dividends, capital gains, interest income, rental incomes, all those mostly in the hands of rich people, you could tax. And that would be not only solving the debt problem and the ceiling problem, but making the United States less unequal, which a vast majority of Americans already support. But I'm not done. We could have a federal 1% property tax, tax on property. And what kind of property would it be? Stocks and bonds. Why would the federal government want to levy a property tax on stocks and bonds? Because at this point, right now, as I'm speaking to you, we have property taxes in this country. They're mostly levied locally by your town or your city, and they fall on your house your land, your automobile, your business inventories. You know what's excluded in local property taxes? Stocks and bonds. Gee, the richest 10% of Americans own 80% of the stocks and bonds. They don't pay a property tax. But on your 10-year-old jalopy in your garage that barely moves, you pay a property tax. Where's the justice in that? Gone. And who would it tax? The 10% richest in this country. Here's another one. It wasn't that many years ago that only the first $600,000 of your estate, if you have one when you die, is taxed by the federal government. Rich people didn't want that. They didn't want to have to start paying on what they left to their children above 600000 You know what it is today for a couple? $25 million. The first 25 million you leave doesn't pay a nickel of federal income tax if you're a couple. You know who have benefits from that? People who have big estates, which means you and I don't benefit. The rich people do. 
And since the rich have more than most Americans believe is reasonable, here's a way to avoid raising the national debt, therefore to make the whole debt ceiling debate disappear by raising taxes on those most able to afford it and who've gotten away with not paying their fair share for many, many decades. And the beauty of the Republicans and the Democrats and the media who report on it and the academic, my colleagues in the university who go along with it is to rigidly keep the conversation between raising the ceiling and the national debt versus cutting spending, as if the option of raising taxes weren't there. You know what that's called? That's called lying by omission rather than lying by commission. It's a deceptive national debate. And the American people should not tolerate it, should not support it, and should call it out for what it is. It is a massive fraud perpetrated on the mass of our people in the attempt to avoid having to face the question, gee, why don't we look at tax increases? And for those of you who have a glib response, tax increases have problems, you're right. They do. But so does cutting spending. So does raising the debt ceiling. They all have problems. An honest debate would talk about their pros and cons. We don't have that. My last quick update is about the former head of the BBC in London, Richard Sharp. He told the prime minister who named him to that job he wanted the job. He promised to organize a meeting between Johnson's cabinet secretary and a Canadian millionaire who would help Johnson with his personal finances, says the BBC. And he also had a role, this Sharp did, in organizing an 800,000 pound, that's about a million dollars, loan guarantee for the prime minister. It doesn't get any sleazier than that. And the British government did this, and Britain's trunk. Boris Johnson did this. It's a lesson in the revolving door between those at the top economically and those who claim to rule us. We've come to the end of the first half of today's program. Please stay with us. We'll be right back with our special guest, Wendell Potter, talking about the struggle for Medicare for All. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. I am very pleased and proud to bring to our microphones and our cameras my guest, Wendell Potter. Let me tell you a little bit about him before I introduce him formally. He's a former health insurance company executive who became that industry's worst nightmare. Time magazine called Wendell the ideal whistleblower. Bill Moyers called him a straight shooter. Michael Moore called him the Daniel Ellsberg of corporate America. Wendell walked away from his job at Cigna, the giant health insurance corporation, in 2008, after what he described as a crisis of conscience. Now Wendell is president of two organizations working to end the employer-based health insurance system and to guarantee health care for all Americans. You will find his latest writing on Substack 
via his Healthcare Uncovered newsletter. So first of all, Wendell Potter, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay, I want to jump right in and, and I have a million questions. I know we don't have that much time. But given your background in working in the healthcare field, why have you chosen, in a way, to change sides, to become an activist for a nationwide single-payer health insurance program, a kind of Medicare for all? Why did you do that? Well, I worked for the industry, as you noted, for Cigna, but also for Humana, altogether about 20 years, so two very big insurance companies. And I saw too much. I guess from their point of view, they wish they probably hadn't promoted me uh, along the way. I left in 2008, as you noted, I was vice president of corporate communications at Cigna. My name was on all of the financial earnings reports for 10 years. I spent a lot of time in New York and Washington and Washington with uh, the, our trade associations to try to kill healthcare reform whenever it uh, was being proposed. I ultimately came to realize that what I was doing for a living was making it impossible for many people to get the care that they needed, and certainly at a price they can afford, even with health insurance. And I saw how insurance companies spend so much money that we pay in premiums to enhance shareholders' value, uh, to reward shareholders and top executives, and then saddle the rest of us with out-of-pockets that are just unaffordable. So we're paying more and more every year for health insurance that's less and less valuable. I left because I couldn't in good conscience keep doing that. And I began uh, working with advocates and ultimately testifying before Congress and uh, have been doing that ever since. And I feel that I need to do this uh, to make amends for what I used to do for a living. Because frankly, in my old job, I was part of the problem. And I um, made it, uh, unfortunately, I helped create a healthcare system in which Still, 30 million Americans don't have health insurance, and more than twice that many with health insurance can't use it. They're functionally uninsured because of unaffordable deductibles that they have to pay before their insurance coverage kicks in. Wow. Okay. My hat, if I wore a hat, I'd be taking it off in salute of what you did. So catch us up, if you will, as for our audience. How would you describe the status of the Medicare for all struggle that folks like you and many others are waging in the United States today? Well, it certainly is still a struggle. In fact, just this year, Physicians for a National Health Program, which is one of the premier organizations uh, comprising physicians that support Medicare for all, will turn 35. So it's been around uh, advocating for Medicare for all or single-payer health care for well over three decades. There are a lot of other organizations who are fighting for it, but it continues to be a struggle. What we do have are champions in Congress, not enough of them, but uh, two good bills that will be reintroduced uh, in May that will, uh, if passed, create a single-payer Medicare for all healthcare system. But the odds of it being passed this year or next year are pretty slim because our current president's not a fan. There are a lot of... Uh, Democrats who are not fans, certainly Republicans are pretty solidly opposed to it and are very much friends of the insurance industry. So it's still a struggle, but we've made progress. I think we've made significant progress. There's a lot of public support for it, and uh, more and more advocates are getting into the effort to try to make sure that we ultimately do have a single-payer healthcare system. You know, I came across a name of an organization. It may have been through something you wrote 
but I wanted not so much about it in detail, but it's called the Red Berets. And I wanted to ask you, what is that? And what an interesting name. And give us some sense of some of these organizations that are banding together and making the progress you describe. Yeah, Red Berets is a wonderful organization that was started a few years ago by a woman who uh, was really good at knitting. <laughs> and uh, she came up with this idea of knitting red berets, and it just really caught on. And it's a nationwide effort. I have no idea how many red berets have been crocheted or, or knitted over the past few years, but they are kind of a symbol of the movement to a certain extent. And uh, they are one very important component of the advocacy for Medicare for All. They're joining organizations like Physicians for a National Health Program, Healthcare Now, and, and a number of other organizations. Uh, the National Nurses United uh, Union is supportive of uh, Medicare for All. And it uh, makes a very valuable contribution because those red berets are very visible. And the members of the organization are those who, who have red berets show up at rallies and uh, are very ardent in their support for Medicare for All. It's been a very great addition to the advocacy community. Yeah, and I think that visibility is just as a, as a lay person watching, it's very important. It, it, it gives the majority of Americans who want this kind of health insurance, who need it and know it, and, and not want it only for themselves, but for their families and friends and neighbors, they know what it means to not worry about that the way we are now forced to do. So seeing, you know, red berets, it's just a way of reinforcing the sense people have of being a bit angry that what is clearly a majority desire is being frustrated by the money of the big corporations given to Congress and all of that. Let me turn to another question, which I hope you can help us with. We originate here in New York City, and there's been a fight here between the mayor of the city and a split labor movement over putting retirees, public employees that have retired, onto the Medicare Advantage program, and there's been really intense struggle around that. Can you briefly summarize what's at stake there and why it's important? Because I'm sure other cities and towns and states are contemplating or have already done what the New York City uh, labor movement is struggling about. You're so right. This is not unique, but it is one that has captured a lot of attention and a lot of opposition. In fact, the the folks who have been at the forefront of the opposition invited me to join them in testimony before the New York City Council earlier this year. I went up to New York and, and testified. And as a consequence of that and the opposition of others who were there that day, there were 200 people who signed up to testify at that one hearing in January. The, the council was so, I think, moved by the testimony that the the council decided not to vote to approve what Mayor Adams uh, is attempting to do. Now, it wasn't Mayor Adams' original idea. It started during the Blasio administration. But uh, the former mayor, the current mayor, and a few labor unions are working very, very closely with uh, private managed care companies, in this case, Aetna, one of the biggest, to uh, move all of the retirees of the city, city workers, uh, retired city workers, into a Medicare Advantage plan. The opposition is really important because 
people don't really understand that Medicare Advantage is not Medicare. It is a private replacement of the, the original or traditional Medicare program, and it's operated by private insurance companies just like they operate commercial insurance companies. If you need a procedure or a test or a medication, you might not get it because in Medicare Advantage plans, they exercise what's referred to as prior authorization. You also, uh, and, and in that case, the, the company can say, we don't think that you really need that, or we're not going to approve that transplant or that medication or whatever it might be. So in many cases, people are needing treatment, needing medication. They just simply can't get it unless they have money of their own to pay for it. The other is they, the healthcare providers, the doctors, the nurses, and, and hospitals and clinics often are not in these managed Medicare Advantage networks. So you have a very limited choice of doctors and hospitals you can go to. And another case, they, another problem is that people have to pay a lot out of their own pockets in many cases for care that they need. So I uh, stand very firmly with the, with the retirees who are fighting this. Uh, the mayor seems to be determined to move forward with it, but there is litigation that, that is continuing, and hopefully they'll prevail. And it's really important because, as you noted, there are other municipalities around the country, other companies that are doing the same thing, and we've got to stop this. Yeah, and I think if I could add a point, no one should be fooled by references to we are reforming the system or we are updating it or these other words. They are, to be polite, not altogether true. More bluntly, they're lying because the whole logic of a private insurance company is to make money. They're in business to profit. Profit is the bottom line. You know, business schools teach the executives profit is the standard against which you decide what you do, how you do it, where you do it, and all the rest. And so it's taking Medicare, which was a government entitlement to you as a citizen of this country, and making it instead subordinate to an institution whose number one priority is something completely different from caring for you, namely making a money for its investors, shareholders, and so on. And it raises that basic question. Nobody should be fooled. This isn't an update or a reform. This is moving from a public service to be given to everybody into a private profit-making service that will be subordinated to making a profit. Well, in the little bit of time we have left, Wendell Potter, I want you to say as passionately as you can, the listeners, the viewers of what you're saying to us, who want to do something, who want to be part of such a movement, who want to support these kinds of efforts, who believe in the right of human beings to have proper health care, what can they do? What should they do? What advice would you give to a person persuaded by your eloquent speech and all that they see? How can they get involved? They can get involved by checking out the work that we're doing at the, the Center for Health and Democracy, which is a nonprofit that I lead. They can check that out at centerforhealthanddemocracy.org. But look at some other organizations like Physicians for a National Health Program. You don't have to be a doctor to belong and support that organization. The Red Berets, Healthcare Now, a lot of organizations are in this fight. Check out the legislation that Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal is sponsoring, co-sponsoring with many other members of Congress in the House. And Senator Bernie Sanders, 
support this legislation, show up, write letters to your and, and call your members of Congress, show up at rallies, do all you can. And time is of the essence because as months go by, these insurance companies are getting more and more in control of our healthcare system. So it's really vital to get in, involved in this effort. Wendell Potter, you've been very, very, very helpful. Thank you. I know our watchers, our listeners will take something away from this that may then strengthen the movement for a proper health insurance system this country so badly needs. So thank you again for joining us and giving us the benefit of all you're doing. And to all of you, as usual, I look forward to speaking with you again next week.